0: All right, Galatians chapter 2, starting in verse 11, reading through verse 16. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Okay. So there you have it. This is, in a sense, the heart of the gospel. This is, in a sense, the heart of Galatians. This is Paul's, uh, I mean, this is Paul's, what he's defending, really, verse 16. That is the heart of the gospel teaching. That we are justified by faith alone in Christ alone and not by works of the law. Um, but just as a brief recap, as we've been seeing so far, this is... The, the rest of chapter 2, really, Paul is going to conclude sort of like his defense of his ministry. Now he's going to start defending the gospel uh, and that's going to go through, you know, verse, uh, chapters 3 and 4. Uh, he'll, he'll expound on the gospel. He'll expound on the new covenant. He'll expound on what it means in our lives. And, and 3 and 4 is really the center of this book. But it all flows out of chapter 2, verse 16, uh, chapter 2, verses 20 and 21. It kind of all flows out of that teaching into chapters 3 and 4 where he really goes into more details about it. But again, Paul is writing to a group of churches in the southern region of Galatia. He's writing to them. This is his first letter. It might even be the first letter, uh, the first book of the New Testament written. And he's writing to these churches because they have abandoned the gospel. They've abandoned the gospel by turning to uh, a gospel that is no gospel at all. Uh, by turning to a perversion of the gospel, a gospel that adds works of the law to saving faith in Christ. And Paul is very upset about that. He's shocked, he's astonished, he's, he's perplexed that they would give up their freedom in order to be enslaved again by these works of the law. So he, he writes very harshly, he writes very pointedly here. Now part of this, of course, is too that they... Uh, these troublers that come in here, you see that in chapter 1, verse 7, the troublers, those who want to cause trouble, uh, those people have been talking bad about Paul, saying he's not a real apostle, he's not, he has not been approved by the Jerusalem Three, his his gospel does not include uh, circumcision, so they've been really talking bad about Paul. So Paul spends a little bit of time talking about his, himself. He He talks about his conversion. He talks about... What kind of a person he was before, um, before his conversion? How he was a zealous Pharisee. He talks about how then he, when he was converted, he was then out there preaching the gospel. How he had previously visited uh, Jerusalem and 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 uh, met with Peter for a brief time, and then he talks uh, talks about a second visit that he had with them. That's what we looked at last time in verses one through ten. He talks about a later visit. A visit that's 14 years later from the time of his conversion. Uh, We've been arguing that that's the visit that uh, in the book of Acts is described at the end of chapter 11. Where they bring the famine relief uh, to Jerusalem. And he meets again with the pillars of the church. So here Paul is like, look. He's talking to the Galatians. He's saying, look, my gospel is the same gospel that is preached by those people in Jerusalem. My apostolic ministry is from the same source as those people in Jerusalem, which is why he says, look, I met with those who seemed influential. He says, it makes no difference to me, right? God shows no partiality. God is not saying that Peter, James, and John are sort of like the popes of the church, and they give me the authority, the authority uh, to for my ministry, has come from Jesus Christ himself. My gospel comes from Jesus Christ himself. The fact that Peter, James, and John recognize that shows that the gospel brings unity. Shows that the gospel here is something that is confirmed among believers and brings a fellowship among them. Because what happens at the end of that passage is when they heard the gospel that I preached, they added nothing to it, is what he says. And then they gave me the right hand of fellowship. So, he, again, he's talking to the people in Galatia, talking to them about how, look, my ministry has been approved, my gospel has been approved, it has been recognized as a true gospel. Uh, we preach the same gospel. So now he's going to talk about, as we go into these verses this morning, he's going to talk about another interaction that he has with Peter. Now, again, it's kind of hard to... Map these events to what you see in the book of Acts but it would seem just based on the timeline that I've been putting forth that what you see in verses 11 through 14 may be the catalyst that starts that Jerusalem council that you see in Acts 15 because that whole council was was, uh, initiated because some people came from Jerusalem to Antioch they said they came under the you know they came uh, with approval from James the Apostle and they came and they said that we need to be circumcised. And that's kind of what you're seeing here. He talks about uh, people who came from uh, James, brothers who were sent from James. And, and uh, so this may be the catalyst that eventually leads to that Jerusalem council in Acts 15. But he's going to have a confrontation here with Peter. And it's, and it's not a subtle confrontation, right? He's, I mean, he, we're going to talk about it. He's going to oppose him to his face, he's going to he's going to go to Peter, right? This is Peter we're talking about. If you're a Roman Catholic or come from that tradition, who's Peter in their eyes? The first pope, right? Here's Paul talking back to the pope. Who talks back to the pope, right? So here's Paul talking back to a pillar of the church, which goes to show it's like, look, even the best of us can get things wrong, right? And and Peter was in the wrong here. And we'll we'll look at that, but Again, as we go through this, the, the, the idea that Paul is going to talk about here is like, look, we are justified by faith alone, in Christ alone, and not by works of the law. You can't add works of the law to the finished work of Christ. You will get nothing if you do that. You will empty the gospel of all of its power. And uh, you make a mockery of the death of Christ. We'll see that in a couple of weeks, but if you, you know, just look down at verse 21 of chapter 2, if I, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if justification were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. If you're going to add works of the law to the gospel, then essentially you're saying Christ didn't need to die. That's what Paul. That's what Paul's saying here. Christ died for no, for no reason. And we don't want to say that. Um, So, as we look at these verses, um, the way I've titled it, the way I've structured it, is you've got Forgetting Faith Alone, Remembering Faith Alone, and then What is Faith Alone? Okay, well, let's move on. Uh, First, Forgetting Faith Alone, verses 11 through 13. But when Cephas came to Antioch, or Peter, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. That just sounds like a bad name for a group of people. (laughs) And the circumcision party. (laughs) I read one commentary called them the James gang because they were the men who came from James. That sounds a lot better than, I'd rather be called the James gang than the circumcision party. What's your party platform? Circumcision. Yeah. <laughs> all the time, all day, every day. Uh, verse 13, and the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with them so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Okay. So we often talk about how we need to be reminded of the gospel every day. And why do we need to be reminded of the gospel every day? because we forget it, right? We forget the free grace of God through Jesus Christ our Lord. We so often forget it. And that forgetting of the gospel happens to the newest of baby Christians when they first come to the faith. You get some of these new Christians and they're so on fire and they're, you know, they get into that cage stage where you, know, they, you know, they're out there and then you need to call them down a little bit. But again, it can happen to the best it could happen to the most mature Christian, as we're going to see here, it happens to Peter. We forget the gospel now. Here, uh, there, this is an episode that happens now in Antioch. So, you know, Paul had talked about his visits to Jerusalem, how he had gone into the desert, went to Damascus, went to Jerusalem. Now he's back in Antioch, and Antioch is a major city in these days. It is the uh, Roman capital of that province uh, that's just north of, of Palestine there, um, and, and Antioch had a very large Jewish population, had a, obviously had a very large Gentile population, uh, and the church that was there was sort of a very special church. Uh, maybe Jerusalem could be considered a megachurch if you want to call it that well Antioch would also be kind of like a a megachurch a lot of things were going on in Antioch Um, in the book of Acts chapter 11 we're going to just look at a couple of passages here in, in Acts that talk about Antioch but I mean Antioch had a lot of a lot of powerful preachers and teachers laboring there Uh, Starting in chapter 11, uh, verse 19 of chapter 11 in the book of Acts. Now we're, we're told about a persecution here that happens. And it says, now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen, so that's the stoning of Stephen, traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking to the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists. Now that's Greek-speaking Jews, uh, Greekified Jews, you can call them, uh, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. Uh, the report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas. So there's our pal Barnabas. To Antioch, And when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. So now you've got Barnabas there, you've got a bunch of other people, you've got Paul there now. Uh, He brought him to Antioch for uh, a whole year. They met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. So here is, in a sense, the birth of the term Christians. Now, Christians was not, is probably more of a derogatory term. It just meant like you're little Christ. That's kind of what the term meant. But they're like, yeah, sure, call us little Christ. We'll wear that badge proudly. Call us Christians. Uh, so here you see that they were first called Christians. And if you just drop down to chapter 13, verses 1 through 3. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a member of the court of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul, or Paul, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So Antioch was special in that it, it was the first to see a large Gentile influx. It was special in the sense that it was also the uh, the first time you, you get this word Christian applied to the believers. But it's also special in the fact that it was the first church to send out missionaries. The missionary efforts that you read throughout the rest of the book of Acts all were headquartered uh, from Antioch. Antioch sent them out. Paul would go out from Antioch. He would travel, and then he would return uh, to Antioch. Sometimes he would return to Jerusalem and then go back to Antioch. But Antioch was like home base for them. And all these mission, uh, missionary efforts sprung forth from Antioch and even throughout the church uh, the history of the church Antioch was a very special city it was one of the the four or five major Christian centers in the Roman Empire uh, throughout the ancient church period you had Antioch, Jerusalem Alexandria down in Egypt Rome would be one uh, and I'm losing the fifth one is oh, uh, Constantinople would be the fifth one Those are like the major centers of of Christian activity, and Antioch was one of them. So this is happening in Antioch, Paul's home base, if you will. And what's the problem? Well, the problem is Peter changes his behavior when certain men came from James, when the circumcision party came. And they brought their little pamphlets, and they're, they're promoting the circumcision party. Join the circumcision party. Our platform is very simple. Uh, and so Peter's behavior changed when they came uh, before they came we see Peter eating with Gentiles we see him fellowshipping with Gentiles something that if you were Jewish you didn't do the Gentile would have to become Jewish in order for you to then associate with them so Peter's just associating with them and then after, he came, after these people came he drew back now I mentioned this before uh, but in Acts chapter 10 Peter is called to the home of Cornelius. And in verse 28 of chapter 10, as he arrives... Now, you know know how the story goes, right? I mean, Peter's sitting up on the rooftop and he's given a vision from God, right, of this giant picnic basket, blanket that's unfurled and all of the unclean food on it. And three times he's told in the vision... Rise, Peter, kill, and eat. And then, of course, Peter, being Peter, (laughs) says, I would never eat anything unclean. And then the Lord says to him, do not call unclean what I have now made clean. And And Peter's probably wondering what this vision means. Well, then he gets this call to come to Caesarea. And you see in verse 28, when he comes to the house of Cornelius, he says, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with Or to visit anyone from another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. And then drop down to verses 34 and 35. He says, So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ... He is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee, after the baptism of John, proclaimed, so on and so forth. So Peter recognizes the fact that God is calling him to preach to the home of Cornelius. Why? Because God says he shows no partiality. This is a new era. The new covenant is not one that is is Jewish specific. It is one that is to all nations, and he shows this to Peter first in a vision and then sends him to the home of a Gentile to sort of, in a sense, fulfill that vision, to give credence to that vision. And then, of course, in chapter 11, he's called before the, the principal's office, <laughs> if you will. <laughs> They're like, hey, Peter, we heard you were eating and associating with Gentiles. And he's like, well, i got to tell the story. So he tells the story to the people in Jerusalem. And in verse 17 of chapter 11... Um, he says, if then God gave the same gift to them, Gentiles, as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, and that gift is the Holy Spirit, who was I that I could stand in God's way? So Peter is acknowledging the facts, like, look, yes, I know it's against Jewish law to associate with Gentiles, but this is a God thing happening here, right? God showed this to me. God poured the Holy Spirit on them as he did on us. In, in, at, uh, on Pentecost so Peter's like who am I to stand in the way this is not my call guys <laughs> we have to accept this we have to accept this new era in our in, our, in our in the faith here so Peter knew this Peter knew it was okay to associate with Gentiles yet here he is in, in Antioch and when the circumcision party comes in Peter changes his behavior he he gets afraid. He's peer pressured, perhaps. He's, he's whatever the case may be. He's, he forgets the gospel. He forgets faith alone. And if that's not bad enough, the entire Jewish uh, contingent there in Galatia was doing the same thing. Even Barnabas. Barnabas, the, the son of encouragement, was also doing the same thing. So Paul calls us for what it is. He's like, this is, this is hypocrisy, brothers. You are acting hypocritically. You are acting contrary to your profession and faith. We'll get to that in a moment in verse 14. This is contrary, and he opposes Peter, and he opposes him to his face. He's not shy about this. He's not a people pleaser like we see in verse 10. Am I now seeking the approval of men? If he was seeking the approval of men, he would not confront Peter to his face. I mean, who knows what could have happened from this, right? You know, but he's like, "This is wrong. I need to say something about it." Now, again, it's not to call Peter's faith into question. It's not to call Barnabas' faith into question. Is this not a question? That you're you're not a Christian. That's not what he's saying. It's like you are acting like a bad Christian. Is what he's saying here? You are acting. You're you're forgetting grace and you're letting law slip into the work into the mix here. And that's what we tend to do. We tend to forget grace and to slip law or mix the two together. So when you mix law and gospel together, you get something called galospel. Okay, that's not my phrase. I didn't come up with that, but it's a clever way of saying it. you get galospel. Just you're mixing the two together and you're conf- you confuse people when you do this. So you can relinquish, we can relinquish our freedom in Christ to the subtle lure, if you will. Of slipping works into salvation. It's so easy to do that. Again, we are hardwired for works, so it's so easy to slip these back in through the back door, if you will. So we need to be reminded of the gospel every day. We need to be reminded that it is all of grace, that there are no works added, and the gospel is for Christians too. We need to hear this message every day. We need to hear this message every Lord's day. We need to be reminded of it every day in our lives that the gospel is all of grace. We add nothing to the mix. You cannot mix law and gospel. You don't want gospel. Okay, gospel burdens people with extra things that are not part of the gospel. And then you're like, then you're like in fear of whether or not you're really a Christian because you have this now a checklist. I, I well I have done this today. I haven't done this today. You know, it's like if I don't do these things. You know, maybe I'm not really a Christian. That's not where we want to be. So now what happens here in verse 14? Uh, So when Paul saw what was happening here, right, he just said, well, okay, that's just just Peter being Peter. (laughs) Is that what he says? (laughs) No, he says in verse 14, but when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, very important there, I said to Cephas before them all, Look, Peter, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We'll explain that in a moment. But note what he says there. Your walk, your conduct, is not in step with the truth of the gospel. Your practice is out of whack with your profession. You're professing this, but your practice is this. Right, you're you're not. They need to be in line. That's what Paul is saying here. Your practice is out of step, or it is um, some other phrases. Uh, It is not straightforward. You're deviating. The word there in Greek is orthopodeo. So think of orthopedic. Right, you know when you put on orthopedic shoes, it helps you to walk right. That's literally what it means. It means right footed, or to be able to walk straight, or act uprightly. And he's like, look, you're, you're, you're non-orthopedic. <laughs> Peter, your conduct is non-orthopedic. It is not in step with your profession. And when he did that, he immediately confronted Peter publicly before them all. they like, well, why didn't he pull him aside like in Matthew 18 and, and bring the sin to the brother personally and privately? Well, was Peter's sin private or public? It was public. Public sin needs to be confronted publicly. Private sin needs to be confronted privately. And here Paul reveals Peter's hypocrisy to him. Again, Peter, one of the pillars of the church according to the circumcision party. He was a Jew living like a Gentile until the circumcision party came in. And now Peter is forcing the Gentiles to live like Jews. So he's compounding two errors here. And the essence of Peter's error is essentially... This. He is adding works of the law to faith in Jesus for our justification. That's what he's doing. Peter had forgotten faith alone, and now Paul was reminding of him, he's like, Look, we're not justified by works of the law, Peter. You know this. And again, he's not calling Peter's faith into question, he's not calling Barnabas' faith into question. He's like, you have forgotten. That's what he's saying. Look, he's like, you're not, you're not an unbeliever. You've just forgotten what it means. You've forgotten that Christ. what Christ has done for you. You cannot add to that, Peter. You cannot add to that. So when he says here, look, it's like, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile not like a Jew, how can you force Gentiles to live like Jews? In other words, if the Jews can't be Jewish enough, that's what he's saying, if, you, if the Jews cannot be Jewish enough, then why are we forcing Gentiles to live like Jews? We can't do it, and we're Jews, that's what he's saying. It's like, yeah, and now we're trying to force the Gentiles to do what we can't do. This is the trap of self-righteousness. The trap of self-righteousness. Whatever standard you set up for yourself is even unattainable for you much less anyone else. That's what you get when Jesus says in Matthew 7, right, that great passage that everyone, <laughs> that all the unbelievers know this one, right? And that's the one that they throw back in our faces. Don't judge me. You know, <laughs> that kind of a thing. But in Matthew 7, uh, verses 1 through 5, when Jesus says, Judge not that you be judged. Not be, sorry, judge not that you be not judged. Verse 2, this is important. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. That's the key there. Whatever, whatever system that you are imposing upon other people, that's the system that's going to be turned back on you. You're like, okay, in order to be a Christian, you've got to do X, Y, and Z. It's going to be turned back on you. It's like, well, how well are you doing X, Y, and Z? Whatever standard you impose upon others, that's going to be turned on you. Then he gives you the example. Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? In other words, I'm trying to force you to live by my rules, but I can't do it. You know, I can't even live by my own rules. I I see your speck, but I I miss this massive 2x4 that is jutting out of my eyeball here. Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your own eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite! First take the log out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Jesus says this again in Matthew 23 when he's crying out to the Pharisees, to the crowds and the disciples, but he's talking about the Pharisees in Matthew 23. Very long diatribe here. Uh, verses 13 to 15 is what I want to focus on here. Because he pronounces all these woes on the scribes and the Pharisees. And he calls them what? He calls them hypocrites. Why? Because they cannot live up to their own standards, the standards that they're forcing on others. But th- verse 13 through 15 Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. You are making disciples to your man-made religion, which you yourselves cannot keep. Woe to you, you are hypocrites, is what Jesus is saying. So here... You see then, and again, this is what we do. We, we often confuse our response to the gospel with the gospel. And thus we get stuck, we get stuck in a Jesus plus mindset. and Whatever that plus is, uh, as Derek Thomas would say, that's a damnable plus. Okay? Whenever you add something to Jesus. Remember, Jesus plus anything equals nothing. But we confuse our response to the gospel with the gospel. That's what gospel is. You take our response to the gospel, which is obedience, which is love, which is all the all the commandments. That's our response, and then we confuse that with the gospel and say that's the gospel. You got to do X, Y, and Z and have faith in Christ, and then all of a sudden the gospel is nothing. Our response to the gospel is not the gospel. The fruit of the gospel is not the gospel. The gospel is the gospel, which is due, or sorry, done. The gospel is just the good news, the declaration that our sins have been forgiven in Christ. Period. End of statement. All the obedience flows out of that truth. That's our response. That's the fruit. It itself is not the gospel. So we've seen here forgetting faith alone. We've seen remembering faith alone. Now let's talk about what is faith alone. Now there's some question here. Uh, In verse 15, whether Paul is still talking to Peter or not. I think he's still talking to Peter here. Because he says at the end of 14, how can we force Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. He's like, look, we're Jews. We can't keep the law. We're not Gentile sinners. In other words, Gentile sinners just means the Gentiles didn't have the law, right? So they couldn't live by the stipulations of the law because they didn't have the law. If you don't know that to step on the grass is illegal, then you're just going to step on the grass, not knowing that it's illegal. So he calls them Gentile sinners. It's like, look, we're Jews, but we know this. Look at verse 16. Yet we know. He's, again, saying to Peter, look, look, we know this to be true. What? That we are not saved by works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So you've got that great verse 16 there. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. So the whole point of verse 16 is to show that one is justified, By faith or through faith in Christ and not by or through works of the law. And notice how that's stated three times in this verse. You've got justified mentioned three times. You've got faith in Christ mentioned three times. You've got works of the law mentioned three times. So in case you're not getting it clear, (laughs) right, Paul repeats himself. We know that we are not justified by works of the law but through faith in Christ. No one is justified by works of the law but through faith in Christ. And this is true for both Jew and Gentile. There's only one gospel for both. It is not one set of rules for the Gentiles and another set of rules for the Jews. It is one gospel of salvation for all. Remember what Jesus says in John 14:6. He says, "I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me." Doesn't say only Jew <laughs> No Jew comes to the Father except... No, it's like no one. That includes Jews and Gentiles. You have to come through the way that Jesus provides. Acts 4.12, we know this one too, right? Uh, there is no other name given under heaven by which men must be saved other than the name of Christ. So what is faith alone? So we've got those three phrases there. Justified, you've got faith, and you've got works of the law. Those phrases that are mentioned three times. Let's look at them. So the first one, justified. Uh, In the Greek, it's a word called uh, Dikaiao. Say that three times fast. Dikaiao. has three basic uh, definitions. Uh, One is to render righteous. The second is to show or exhibit one to be righteous. And the third is to declare or pronounce one to be righteous. So when Paul is talking about justification here, he is not talking about we are rendered righteous because we have no righteousness of our own. We cannot earn a righteousness of our own. Why? Because we are born in sin. That's the whole, you know, we talked about this when we go through to the Heidelberg. The, the misery in which we are found in is the fact that we are sinners by birth. We cannot earn our own righteousness. So it can't be won. And the definition to show or exhibit, that's a definition of justification that James uses But it's not what Paul is using here. He is using the third one. So when Paul is saying that you are justified, he is saying you are declared, you are pronounced righteous before God. It is is a pronouncement. It is a a legal pronouncement in a sense. It is a declaration from the judge of saying you are innocent. You You are righteous in my sight, not because of something in your own selves, but by faith in Christ. His righteousness comes to us by faith. And then that faith, you've got that faith there. um, To believe, to trust, to think to be true, to place your confidence in. We talk about this a lot, too. Um, You've got the hymnal in the back. You've got the catechism question on this one, on faith. Because we've talked about this. Faith has three components. It's knowledge, assent, and trust. So you have to know certain facts, you have to believe them to be true, and then the key part is you have to trust them to be true, and that trust is demonstrated or evidenced in how you behave. So in, I think it's on page, uh, page 864, Lord's Day 7, Heidelberg 21, answers the question, what is true faith? Well, true faith is not only the knowledge, so there's your knowledge, whereby I hold for truth, there's your assenting to the truth, all that God has revealed to us in his word, but also a hearty trust. So there's your three elements there. Knowledge, you hold for truth, all that God reveals in his word, and also a hearty trust, which the Holy Ghost works in me by the gospel. That not only to others, but to me also forgiveness of sins, everlasting righteousness, and salvation are freely given by God, merely of grace, only for the sake of Christ's merit. So that's the trust part. The trust part is saying, I rest in, I believe in, I, I trust that everything God has promised to me in his word is true. And I will then live my life in light of that. That means I won't try to earn my salvation because Christ has given it to me. Everything I need has been freely given through my faith in Christ. Uh, Belgic Confession has a statement on this too. Looking at the time, probably not going to read it. But if you want to know, it's Article 22 on page 881. I'll just read the first paragraph here. We believe that to attain the true knowledge of this great mystery, the Holy Spirit kindles in our hearts an upright faith which embraces Jesus Christ with all his merits, appropriates him, and seeks nothing more besides him. That's key. That's what's happening in Galatia. They're seeking more. For it must needs follow either that all things which are requisite to our salvation are not in Jesus Christ, Or if all things are in him, then then those who possess Jesus Christ through faith have complete salvation in him. Therefore, for any to assert that Christ is not sufficient, which is what the Galatian heresy is, but that something more is required besides him, would be too gross a blasphemy, for hence it would follow that Christ was but half a Savior. So there you have faith alone. So we are declared righteous through faith. That faith is a trust in everything God has promised in and through the gospel of Jesus Christ alone. And then he says, not by works of the law. And works of the law there, it's basically deeds or actions that come out from or flow from the law. And in the Galatian context here, of course, the law here is the Mosaic law. So circumcision, usually circumcision is is a catch-all phrase that means everything included underneath that as well. So dietary restrictions, worship restrictions, all the thing. In other words, what they were saying is in order to be a Christian, you have to be a Jew first. Then you can become a Christian. So the works of the law then in our context would just be pretty much anything else that we would add to earn favor or merit with God. Now, if time permitted, I would give you examples of what we typically add to it, but usually it's in this form of some kind of good works, okay? Some kind of pious action that we would add to say, well, you're not really a Christian unless you do this as well, right? And that's where, again, we're slipping that response to the gospel into the gospel and making gospel, okay? That's what we're doing there. Uh, Again, looking at time, I was going to refer to some Stories here, some passages here, just one. Let's look at Luke 18. I'm really trying to make this quick. Luke 18, and this is the parable of... Well, it's not the parable. This is the story of the rich young ruler. Morning. So this is the story of the rich young ruler... In Luke 18, verse 18. And a ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Well, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandment. Do not commit adultery. Do not commit murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, All these things I have kept from my youth. So the ruler comes up to Jesus and says, What must I do? to earn eternal life. Now what Jesus gives him, is that law or gospel? It's a law. What do you, what, what, he says, what do I have to do to earn inherit eternal life? I'll tell you what you have to do. You have to keep the law. Perfectly. Perpetually. Personally. No failures. So he gives him the law. And, he, and the guy's like, okay, well, obviously he does not have a Mature understanding of the law. He says, well, I've done all that. So then Jesus says, okay, well, then you lack one other thing. Sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and then follow me. Again, that's law. That's not gospel. He's trying to crush this person with the law. He's trying to crush his understanding of the law by showing, it's like, you haven't kept it as much as you think you have. And he turns away. And Jesus, looking at him with sadness, said, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God, for a easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. In the Jewish mind, if you're wealthy, you were blessed, right? Think of Job. Job was wealthy. He was blessed. And then when he lost it all, what did his friends say? Well, you, you sinned because God took away your wealth. So for them, they're like, well, this guy can't make it. Disciples are like, well, then who can be saved? And then key verse there, 27, with uh, with men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. So the point here is you cannot add anything to the gospel. If you try to add anything to the gospel, you get gospel and you mix up categories and you end up ruining the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's the greatest enemy to the gospel is to add to the finished work of Christ which is what a lot of people do. You confuse justification with sanctification when you do that. And this doctrine, justification by faith alone, in Christ alone, was the heart of the Reformation. And we do the gospel a great disservice if we forget it or confuse it. So just in closing here, as we're running out of time, and, and I, I cannot overstate this enough, we are justified by faith alone in Christ alone and not by works of the law Because if this is not true, then we lose any assurance, we lose any hope of salvation. Because then it all becomes upon us. If if we have to do works of the law to be justified, then we will never know if we've done enough. And the the truth of the matter is you cannot do enough. You cannot do enough. And much of the confusion surrounding the gospel is from, I think, well-meaning brothers and sisters in Christ in an effort to protect against sort of a kind of a superficial or false, false profession of faith, which is a real problem, but then they overcorrect, they overreact by then slipping works of the law into the gospel. It's like, well, we don't want to be those who just say, I can believe in Christ and do whatever I want. So we have to say, there's, well, there's got to be some evidence of the fact that you believe in Christ. So then that evidence then becomes, in a sense, merged with the gospel, and then you get the confusion. Remember, again, our response to the gospel is not the gospel. The fruit of the gospel is not the gospel. The gospel, again, is a proclamation of good news that what we could not do, Christ has done. And the only way we are saved is by trusting in this gospel and resting in the finished work of Christ. Our obedience, then, is an outflow. It is a fruit. It is a product of that saving faith. And it's a product of the Holy Spirit then applying that work to us in Christ. So we'll stop here Uh, next time, which is not next week, because next week we have the conference, which was postponed from this week. So in in two weeks, we'll look at the rest of chapter 2 of Galatians.